Thank you, Pastor Bill. What a joy to be in God's house with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, we're going to begin in verse 31 this morning. We'll finish out chapter 25, work our way down through verse 46. Well, this morning, Matthew 25, you remember the context of this passage is the Olivet Discourse. And in this uh, really two chapters, uh, Jesus is answering two questions presented by the disciples. Jesus has just told them of the temple that not one stone is going to be left upon another. And that, as you can imagine, was very alarming information. The temple was the centerpiece of life and worship. And all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, it's all coming down. And so their questions were, when is this going to take place? When are these things going to happen? And what will be the signs of your coming? And so really all of 24 and 25 are in answer to those two questions. Now he gives them a lot of information. But at the heart of all of this information is really three things that we all need to be reminded of that he's been telling us over and over again. Number one, he is coming back. Uh, Make no mistake it, Christ is coming back back. In fact, he says it's more certain than the laws of nature. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. He says, you can write it down, take it to the bank. I am coming back. But number two, he tells them, you don't know exactly when. He says, no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels in heaven. Christ says, at this point in my life ministry, I don't know. Only the Father knows. And in light of that, what he's really challenging the disciples and all the listeners, in fact, you and I, he's challenging us since we know he's coming back, but we don't know when, always be prepared. Always be prepared. And really what we've seen in chapter uh, 25 is he's giving us evidence that we're prepared. So he's almost uh, knowing that the question will come, well, how do I know if I'm prepared? Now, then he gives them the example of the ten bridesmaids. And the lesson there was, if you're prepared, you're a person who is continue, continuing to abide in faithfulness. That the kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to those who just simply prayed a prayer or walked an aisle. But those who persevere. Those who continue to abide in faithfulness. Who are in it for the long haul. Those who really committed themselves to Christ. Counted the cost. And they abide in faithfulness. With the parable of the talents. The question is. Are you using the gifts that God has given to you? You want to know if you're prepared? Well today are you using the gifts that God has given to you. And trusted to you today. Are you using those gifts to grow his kingdom for his glory? And then we come to another evidence today. With the sheep and the goats, and really the picture is, how are you doing at loving the Christians that God has put around you? So with that in mind, let's read this text. Pick up with me in verse 31. It says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on, the, on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? 
When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it, uh, to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he'll also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or, or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, as we study your word this morning, I pray that you would help us to lay aside anything that would distract us from focusing upon you and your word and hearing your voice. And Lord, I want to pray very specifically for anybody here that might not be prepared for your coming. They don't know you. They've never trusted in you. Lord, I pray that you would work in their heart to draw them to yourself. I pray, Lord, by means of this clear and plain text, all of us would examine our hearts to see if we are in the faith, to know that we're prepared, knowing you are coming back. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as we look at this passage, there are a couple of doctrines here um, that are addressed by Christ that are unfortunately today, somewhat controversial and even hated um, by certain people. And it's the doctrine of God's judgment and the doctrine of hell. And what this passage makes clear and really what all of God's word makes clear is that there is a day of judgment coming. And I think for most of us, we understand that, but I think I'd be remiss if we didn't pause here just briefly and make this abundantly clear. He says, the Son of Man is coming in his glory. That's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. You see it also in Revelation 19. But the Word of God declares to us that there is a day when Christ will return and he will come in his glory. And when it talks about his glory, that's not the glory of a sunset. That's not the glory of a beautiful mountain range. This is the glory of God. If a glorious sunset can make our jaws drop, imagine standing before Christ in all his glory. See, the first time Christ came, he came in humility. He came as a baby in a manger. He came... Uh, to, not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The next time he comes back, he's coming back in visible glory. And it will be overwhelming. And he not only comes back in his glory, but if you read this carefully, it says he comes with all the angels, meaning all the heavenly host will come with Christ as he returns. Now that is overwhelming. If the glory of Christ were not enough, now we have in addition to this, all the myriads of the hosts of angels will come with Christ 
Let me remind you, one angel in the Old Testament kills 185,000 men. And every time one angel, just one angel shows up in Scripture, the response of men is always that they are terrified. Imagine this moment when Christ returns in his glory with all the heavenly hosts. And why does he come back? What is the purpose of his coming? We see it here. He comes to judge. There's going to be a separation He's coming to bring the judgment of God. And you know, since the beginning of time, the great lie of Satan, one of the great tactics of Satan is to deny the judgment of God. In fact, what was the very first lie that Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden? You will surely not die. In other words, you can do whatever you want to. There's no real judgment coming. It's always been the tactic of Satan. It's the lie of Satan. It was the lie of Paul's day. It was the lie of Peter's day. In fact, 2 Peter primarily deals with the fact there was a group of people who were saying, since Christ hasn't come back, then he's not coming back. And Peter writes to him and says, don't mistake God's patience for his lack of follow through. He is coming back, but he's patient, desiring none to perish, but all to come to repentance. It was the lie of this false teaching called Gnosticism, much of your New Testament, Galatians, a lot of these letters of Paul are primarily directed towards this lie of Gnosticism. And the lie of Gnosticism was that you could attain to some higher level of intellect. You could gain some higher level of knowledge that would bring you to a place where what you did in the flesh didn't really matter. There was no real morality, no moral code, and no ultimate judgment. And by the way, does that sound familiar today? That we've attained to a higher level of thinking. We've become really smart people. And all these ideas of heaven and hell and judgment, those are our archaic ideas. Those are old ideas. Now we've gotten smart, haven't we? And in our smartness, we've eliminated any morality, no real moral code, and there's no judgment. We are, as some say, we are thinking people. We're sophisticated. We're smart people. And there's no morality and no judgment. Listen, you don't have to be real sophisticated or smart to understand that Christ says in his word, he's coming back to judge. And when he comes back to judge... Scripture also makes clear that there is a separation, that heaven is an exclusive place. Not everybody is going to heaven. Sometimes it appears that we preach salvation by death. But listen to me. The Bible does not teach universalism. The Bible does not teach purgatory. The Bible does not preach or teach reincarnation the bible says it's been appointed unto man once to die and then judgment the word of god declares that god has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through a man every one of us is going to stand before god and have to give an account and there's only two destinations no third category 
Some will be welcomed into heaven, according to verse 34. We see it right here. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The picture we have here is that this kingdom will be filled with delight, with limitless joy and everlasting satisfaction. But on the other hand, there are those who will go to a place that the Bible calls hell. Those who have not trusted in Christ, those who are not prepared for his return, you see it in verse 41. Don't take my word for it. He says here, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The Bible presents hell as a very real, literal, and eternal place. You see it in chapter 24, verse 51, cut him into pieces and assign him with a a place with the hypocrites in that place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In chapter 25, verse 30, you saw it last week, throw out the worthless slave in the outer darkness in that place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In chapter 24, 51, eternal fire. And there's a lot of people that don't want to talk about these things because we don't want to offend anybody. Listen to me, the most offensive thing we could possibly do to you is not tell you the truth. And the truth of God's word is that there is this place called hell and it is very real and it is literal and it is eternal. And this is why the Bible over and over again, the Bible says to you and me, trust in Jesus, be prepared because Christ is returning. Make yourself ready. Why is Christ, does, does he go overboard? In fact, as I read 24 and 25 again, if, a, if, he, if an English teacher was grading him, he would have got counted off for redundancy. Because he just keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again. Be ready. Get yourself prepared because I am coming back. And a lot of times the question that is asked is, how in the world can a loving God send anybody to hell? And we could spend a lot of time talking about that this morning, but... The thing that hit me as I was studying this passage, as I read verse 31 several times this week. Listen, when verse 31 occurs, when Christ comes back in all of his glory with the myriads of the angels of heaven, when that moment occurs, listen to me. The question will no longer be, how can a loving God send anybody to hell? I think in that moment, the question is going to be, how can any of us as sinners enter into the presence of a holy God? See, the Bible, it doesn't, it really doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about hell. But it spends a whole lot of time talking about how sinners like you and I can possibly get to heaven and be in the presence of a holy God. That's the real question. And the answer over and over and over and over again in God's word is that the only way that you and I are ever going to be able to get into the presence of a holy God is only by means of the sovereign and abundant grace of God demonstrated through Jesus Christ. We see it in verse 34. This is amazing to me. It says, and then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed in my father and here the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. From, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, underline or circle that phrase, from the foundation of the world. Meaning that for those of us that enter into the kingdom, enter into heaven, he prepared a place for us from the foundation of the world. From the foundation of the world, God loved you. 
From the foundation of the world, Christ had already volunteered to die for you. From the foundation of the world, God had a picture of you, and he had already decided that he would do whatever it took to buy you back and to redeem you. Before you ever did anything bad and before you ever did anything good. He had already prepared a place for you. You know what that means? That means that your salvation is not dependent in any way on the basis of your actions or somehow your righteousness. It is only based on the righteousness of Christ and our trust and our faith in him. The only hope we have is that there is a God-man who's come and lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we should have, and thereby, therefore provided a way back to God through faith in him. It's the only way any of us are getting into heaven. You aren't getting in on the basis of your own good works. Imagine standing before the holiness of Christ and all of his glory with the myriads of angels, and you beginning to brag about your church attendance. Listen, it's going to sound awful silly at that moment. I'm fairly certain you're not going to impress God with all your good deeds. I think in that moment you're going to know, as all of us will, we are sinners. And our only hope is the grace of God extended us to us through Jesus and our trust and our faith in him. So I just wanted to make very certain that we saw this very clearly on the front end here. And I know I'm preaching to the choir in so many ways. But my fear, as you've heard me say before, is that somebody would come to this place and somehow think that you're going to enter into heaven on the basis of how well you lived. Or you're going to get into heaven on the basis of your church attendance or your membership at a church or your baptism in a pool. Listen, our only means of salvation is trusting in Jesus. He's coming back. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a separation. The only means of preparation is to trust in Christ. And if you've not done that, you've got no guarantee of another day, and you've got no guarantee that Christ didn't come back this afternoon. You better make yourself ready. That's the challenge. That's the exhortation. That's the encouragement of Christ in God's word. Trust in Jesus. So we get that out of the way, amen? All right. That's the means of salvation. What Christ has been talking about in this passage is the evidence of salvation. What does our lives look like that give evidence? Because somebody would ask, well, how do I know that I know that I know that I've been born again by the Spirit of God? And that's what he tells us. And what we see in this passage is that one of the great evidences that I truly know Christ is that I love and serve the believers that he's put around me. So one of the evidence, this is not the means of salvation, but the evidence of salvation is that I love the believers who are around me. And that's really what we see in this passage. He welcomes these into the kingdom in verse 35. He says, for I was hungry. He says, because I'm welcoming you into the kingdom because your life gave evidence. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. He goes on, thirsty. I was a stranger. I was naked. I, I, I was sick. You visit, I was in prison. And what's their response? We, we don't even remember doing those things. And he says, whenever you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you were doing it to me. 
And then there's, a, there's another group. He says, depart from me because you didn't do these things for me. And their response is, we don't remember. When were you in front of us? If we, knew, if we had known you were there, we would have done something. But we don't, we don't ever remember even seeing you. And he says, when you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And the clear instruction, the clear principle from this text is how we love and serve the believers around us gives evidence that we know Christ. How we love and serve the believers around us gives evidence that we know Christ. And this love, there's three qualities of this love that we got to see that are plain in this text. Number one, this is a love that's a brotherly love. It's a brotherly love. You'll see it in verse 40. He talks about these brothers of mine. He's clearly talking about here in this text how we love fellow believers. Now, some of you say we're supposed to love our enemies. We are. And Christ commands us in another place. Love your enemies. In fact, you want a good picture of that. If you've not seen the video of Gene Botham's brother, who on, uh, during the um, sentencing trial stood there and forgave Amber Geiger, if you've not seen that video, you need to go watch it because that's how we love our enemies. That's how to forgive right there. But if we want to preach that, we got to look at a different text. <laughs> This text, this passage is speaking to loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus here indicates that one of the primary indicators of salvation is that you are able to love and serve the believers he's put around you. This is the heart of Christ. John 13, 34, Jesus said, a new command I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is saying the great evidence of the divine nature of the church, the great evidence, the visible evidence of the truth of the gospel is that you are able to do that which the world can't do. The world can make advances in science the world can make advances in technology, but they just keep on fighting with one another, don't they? But amongst my people, having been born of my spirit, you have the ability to actually love one another. It is the great evidential sign of salvation. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends. Peter preaches the first Christian message ever. 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know that they're saved? What's the great evidence that they've been born again by the Spirit of God? Well, it's said in verse 42 in Acts chapter 2, and all those who had believed had all things in common, and they began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing them with all as any might have need. The visual picture that God had showed up and converted these men and women is that they now had the ability to supernaturally love and serve one another. So I hope we understand this right here. One of the great evidences that we are truly born again by the Spirit of God is not the clothes we wear. It's not that we have a theological degree. It's not the accrual of information. It's not the memorization of Scripture. One of the primary indicators that we are truly born again of God is that we love one another. Amen? First John, John puts it more plainly. He said, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. I love John. He just gets in your face. Because you can't love God and be born again by his spirit and not turn around and love fellow Christians. It's a brotherly love. Secondly, it's a natural love. 
It's obvious from this text that these individuals who loved the least of these brothers, it was natural. In fact, I would say it was ordinary uh, because when Jesus asked them about it, that, that, or when he says, you did these things for me, their, their response is, we don't even remember doing that. So it's not like this was some big deal. It wasn't something that appeared unusual for them. It was something that was just kind of the natural outflow of their life, meaning that loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not something we do, it's who we are. It's part of our nature, it's part of our DNA. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter one. Turn to your right, 1 Peter. 1 Peter. You get to Hebrews, keep turning to your right. You get to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, turn back to your left. 1st Peter, chapter 1. You've got to see this in God's word. 1st Peter, chapter 1, verse 22. Peter explains this. 1st Peter, chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. That's conversion. You stop right there. You want to put a parenthesis. That's called conversion. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your soul. Obedience to the truth means that you recognized you were a sinner and you knew Christ was your only means of salvation. You trusted in him. That's obeying the truth and it purified your souls. You were made new. You were made right through faith in Christ. So since uh, in your obedience to the truth, you purified your souls. What do he say? For a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So he says you've You've been purified. You've obeyed the truth. Love one another. And then look at verse 23. For, this is an explanation of verse 22. Verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but what is imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. He's saying to them, you are able to love one another fervently from a sincere heart because you've been born again by the seed of God's word. Not the seed of your parents. This is not an earthly birth. You're not born again of another sinner. You've been born again of God, meaning you have God's DNA in your life now. And because you have God's DNA and you've been born of him, guess what? As you live, you're going to begin to look and act like him because you've been born of him. It's part of your DNA. It's part of who you are. And who is God? God is love. You and I, this is not loving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not something that we have to be coerced to do. It's who we are. And it gives evidence that we've been born again by the Spirit of God. I've used this, uh, this illustration before, but how do my boys know that they're my boys? They can show you a birth certificate, but somebody might forge one of those. How do they know that they're mine? Because unfortunately for them, the older they get, the more they begin to look and act like me. How do you know that you've been born of God? You will begin to look and act like him. It'll be the natural outflow of your life because it's now part of your DNA. You've been born again by the word of God, by the seed of God's word. So do you see this? This is natural. No one has to coerce us to do this. This isn't a to-do list. This just overflows out of our nature, having been born again by the Spirit of God. That's why I get so excited by new believers that just plug into to the church and they start going to Sunday school classes and they start loving their brothers and sisters. They can't help but want to be around the people of God. 
That's evidence of salvation, that they've been born again by the Spirit of God. But thirdly, finally, it's a practical love. Food, water, clothing, visitation. I love this. The love that demonstrates salvation is a practical love. It's practical. It's not just theoretical. So some of you are saying, when I ask, well, how are you doing in loving your brothers and sisters? Well, I love my brothers and sisters. Well, don't you love us about Jesus? Well, it's not just theoretical. Let's get practical here. He brings it down to our level, doesn't he? So the question would probably be, when was the last time you provided a meal for a brother or sister of Christ who might have needed it? Um, We have groups that go down to City Union Mission. When was the last time you went down there and served? When was the last time you were made aware of a family in need and you took a meal over to their house because they were hurting? When was the last time you went and visited a brother or sister who was in the hospital? You say, well, I don't know of anybody in my life that's in the hospital. Well, come talk to us. We'll tell you. We got lots of folks. We got a we got a ministry called the CARES Ministry. We got people, we're churches big enough, we got people in the hospital all the time. You could go visit somebody every day if you wanted to. And if you've been there, if you've been in the hospital, there's nothing like knowing that somebody loves enough about you to come see you and pray with you. See, this, this kind of demonstration of love has some skin on it. It's not just, hey, I love you, brother. No, it's a love that moves us to action. That I have a dollar, you have a dollar. You need to move, I'll call a friend with a truck. He'll come help you out. Some of y'all get that later. (laughs) But it means that we help one another. We're practical. So let let me just give you some questions because you're wondering where am I at. All of us, myself included, these are some questions we need to ask ourselves. Number one, are you humble? You want to know if you're demonstrating this kind of love. The first question is, are you humble and there's no room for pride in this kind of love. You have to check your ego at the door. The stuff that's made you great in the world out there, you leave it out there. It doesn't wash in here because we are family, amen? We're all sinners saved by grace. You go home for Thanksgiving. When you gather around that table, do your parents seat you according to your earning, earning potential? <laughs> do they seat you according to your degree level? No. Everybody's got a seat at the table. Why? We're all family. In the church, that's the way we are. You got to leave your ego at the door. You got to be humble. Secondly, are you nice? I mean, this is just base level stuff. There are far too many mean Christians out there. Listen, be nice. Um,. You know the word mean? It's just an old word that means average. Median means average, means common. As Christians, we're not called to be common. We're called to be great. We encounter too many mean people out there in the world. In here, we're nice. Not only are you nice, are you forgiving? Don't hold a grudge. Listen, if Christ came back tomorrow, would you be caught holding a grudge against a brother or sister in Christ? Why in the world would you let that simmer in your heart and destroy you? 
Are you patient, long-suffering? I love this word. One, one Sunday, I'm going to preach a message just on the word forbearance. It's the lost art amongst Christians. Do you know what forbearance means? It means the ability to put up with somebody else. Why? Because they put up with you. It's the ability to overlook a fault, which Scripture tells us it's a glory to you to overlook a fault, meaning there's certain things that we have to address, right? But there's other things that we overlook and we extend grace because people have to extend grace to us. Do you know what God does to make you look more like him? He introduces you to people just like you. Amen? You want to lo- learn to love like God loves? You've got to learn to love people just like you. That's what, God, what makes God great. Is he loves a sinner like me. And does God extend grace to me every moment of every day? And he says, as I've extended grace to you, you go extend it to a fellow believer. Are you patient? Are you sympathetic? I have grown so weary of people saying, well, God just didn't make me sympathetic. Well, in your flesh, you're not sympathetic. But by the power of the Spirit in you, you have the ability to be sympathetic. And you ought to be. It's the ability to hurt when another believer hurts and, and to rejoice when another believer rejoices. To demonstrate sympathy. We all struggle, amen? We see this in the early church. They struggled. The Hebrew widows, the Greek-speaking widows, Acts chapter 6, they get sideways with one another. The deacons have to step in. They're formed. We got to get this right because we got to love each other in the body of Christ. Jewish believers, Gentile believers try to make their way in. Now we've got to have a whole council because we don't even know if they can do it. We don't, we don't want these two groups mixing. And the church had to work through that because we can't demonstrate, as Paul said in Ephesians, we can't demonstrate the manifold glory of God until we come together as different individuals and love one another because we're all born of the Spirit of God. We're all family, regardless of where we came from. We see this running throughout Scripture. We all struggle with this. Because by our flesh, this flesh, this sin nature that we're doing our best to put off every day and we're being made new through faith in Christ, this flesh tends towards selfishness, doesn't it? We tend to be very self-centered people. But you know what? By the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts and our lives, we have the ability to take the love that we naturally have for ourselves and redirect it towards others. And that's supernatural. And that is what gives evidence that we've been born again by the Spirit of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to study your word that's so plain, so clear when it comes to these issues of salvation, the means of salvation, the evidence of salvation. God, I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, they've never trusted in your son Jesus and him alone for salvation, no matter whatever else they're trusting in this morning, I pray that they would see the depth of their own sin and the beauty of their Savior Jesus and they would run to you and they would know your grace and your forgiveness. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray each of us would examine our hearts this morning. Are we demonstrating a brotherly love that gives evidence to the fact that we know you? 
in the way that we love each other in the church, can the world see that that is supernatural? God, I pray that you would work in our hearts to root out self-centeredness and unforgiveness and anger and meanness that we might demonstrate your love, your supernatural love by the power of the Spirit for the glory of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We'll have pastors here at the front, love to talk with you, love to pray with you. Maybe you just want to pray with a pastor. Maybe you want want to unite with our church family. This is your time. Know this morning, you will never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.